0: Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1 Sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway Timberliving.ie Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1 Sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins Open your mind to a new way of living Timberliving.ie Timberliving.ie
1: Good morning and very welcome to the show. Uh, There's no um, big story galvanising all the front pages of the papers today. The Business Post has... uh a story about how Twitter had significantly watered down its trust and safety rules. So that stuff that would have uh, had you suspended or that you would have been made take down before is now just buried so that people would have to go looking for it. And this is, you know, the the usual abuse and offence and that kind of thing. Uh, The Sunday Times, we'll get Tuscan Duplantier killer, Gardie tell her son, family reassured of arrest 27 years after murder in West Cork. But the Sunday Independent front page story certainly would pack a punch. It's a story about uh, Aoife Johnston and Aoife Johnston, if you remember, is a 16-year-old who died in University Hospital Limerick. Uh, her family held her a mass for her first anniversary yesterday she waited 12 hours for treatment for sepsis and by the time she got the treatment it was too late and maybe she in the inside the the paper has uh the, the the story of what happened on the night and it's a harrowing harrowing read uh the irish mail on sunday uh, stab hero flies home to rio on one way ticket and that's um caio benicio who was you remember one of the Heroes of that stabbing in Dublin city centre and he has uh, gone home for now to be reunited with his family um, and the Myrrh has the same story, uh, emotional reunion with his family for Caio Benicio and the son has that the Kinahan cartel has a new kingpin in charge of its Irish operations. Okay. Our panel today, Alice Leahy, is Director of Services at the Alice Leahy Trust. Ben Tonner is Professor of International Relations at UCD. Mick Clifford is a Special Correspondent at The Examiner. And Lorna Fitzpatrick is an Account Manager at Instinctive Partners. Good morning, everybody. Good
0: morning, morning. Everybody.
1: No. Alice Leahy, you're upset about the uh, new Ambassadors residence uh, that we are buying in, in Washington. Uh, Lorcan Allen is writing about it in the Business Post.
2: Uh, y- yes, I am, Brendan. <laughs> I suppose we're hearing so much about millions these days. It's hard to get rounded, but property may be much more expensive in America than it is here. But anyway, a new residence, a nine nine bedroomed residence, uh, and it extends to fifteen thousand square feet for our ambassador in America. And the cost of it is really uh, astronomical. Well, but it, well, it's no, it's, it's twelve million. It's significantly
1: Washington. lower than previously reported figures. It is, and and they say a rigorous economic assessment of the proposed purchase was undertaken.
2: Well, but actually, it's, it's much cheaper than what the Americans are going to spend on the demolition of Jury's Hotel for their ambassador. So I suppose we can't uh, complain. Yeah, uh, too which much. which 649 million euro. That's, and
1: that, that's what to demolish and rebuild a big complex obviously. there. Now, it will yeah. bring a no, lot listen, of listen, What the Americans do, with the, it, it, it will what the Americans do with their money is their business, I suppose. Oh, it is,
2: And they'll give plenty of employment there and it might improve the area. But it, it, we are talking about millions and I can't get my head around it. Yeah,
3: yeah. All... Yeah, I mean, first thing to say is we got a 7 million discount on the asking price for the, for the residents. Um, secondly, that is Embassy Row in Washington. That's what you pay for having an embassy residence in Washington. It, yeah, we have an embassy as well. Yes I'm right. A, a, yeah a, a office this building office is, block yeah this, yeah okay yeah, so that would be the administrative stuff but this is for this, the ambassador for the, ambassador, for the, the entertaining parties, for the guests yeah. exactly and it is it is part of diplomacy i mean i know it's a cliche to talk about diplomatic dining for ireland but it is it is it is a integral part of the job and it's part of the way that Ireland maintains a presence in Washington and maintains influence in Washington. And it's expensive but it's necessary.
1: Yeah and it's a hugely important relationship for us. I critical. Suppose, isn't it? Yeah. yeah Lorna.
0: Don't disagree with that. I'm just not sure how critical the swimming pool in the cinema is. Um, so you know it, having a residence and having a space um, in, in an important area and being able to um, support ambassadors to do that incredibly important work in terms of diplomacy absolutely. Um, but I suppose the swimming women pulling the cinema were what really stood out to me. I suppose the cinema you can see that like our
1: culture is a huge part of our footprint around the world as well and that you know maybe showings of Irish films the
3: pool parties I, I'm not sure that's part of the <laughs> Plus properties yeah. at that level that's what they come with. I mean you know they're not they not two up two downs.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: Mick Clifford, yeah,
4: I'm saying pool, nothing there. I could dig with the pool parties, all right. I mean, <laughs> you know, we could have been a crack over there, all right, but it, it, it does seem excessive. And you, I suppose, I, look, I, I, I take into account in terms of the relationship, in terms of appearances, etc. One wonders whether the residents as well as the embassy both have to be of that kind of a standard and you know, making pause anyway, I'd put it that way, yeah.
1: Uh, so Ben, is a huge part of of our keeping up our relationship with America is actually like bringing people to the It's moving and, and shaking. It's bringing people together. It's, it's
3: being a hot ticket in Washington. I mean, you've got you've got very very busy politicians who have you know many many invitations coming to their office every single day. The invitation that goes to the top of the list, the event that they attend, that's critical because you want those people in your room. And the Irish Embassy has a great reputation in Washington as being a, if you will forgive the expression, a good gig, a place you want to go to because. You know, you meet interesting people and it's, you know, the hospitality is phenomenal. um, And that is diplomatic currency.
1: Yeah. Okay. So as much as we might want to think it's all kind of official work and business, it's actually about being a hot ticket. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of that diplomacy is happening outside the hours of nine to five. Okay. Um, We'll move on. Uh, Lorna, you picked, uh, no... Can I just say, b- before we talk about this Eva Johnston story, we're not going to get involved in any of the, the, the individuals involved or anything else like that. But you picked, uh, it's Maeve Sheehan's inside piece on page six of The Sunday Independent, the tragedy just waiting to happen.
0: Yeah, look, I, I think, um, as you said in the introduction, it's a really harrowing story. And I think just at the outset, as with everyone, I think that, that our thoughts are with Eva Johnston's family. Um, I think the, the story itself... Um, goes into detail around the clear failures in governance both clinical and and, and wider um failures in governance and i think you know uh we've just been talking about millions there and I suppose Ireland is not a, a poor country and we know that um, but throwing money at the problem doesn't seem to be fixing it particularly when it comes to the HSE um, and there's lots of stories across the papers today um, about beds that have been promised that haven't come to fruition um, about recruitment freezes and how they're having an impact on the quality of care that people are are, are, um, are receiving and um, there's another story about a four year old girl who, who died of, of, um, of sepsis in hospital as well all of these, I suppose, all come back to that piece around governance and and clinical and and wider governance issues and accountability and decision making processes. And I suppose, like we we need to, to to drill into it a little bit more. I think it's not necessarily just a matter of throwing money at the at the HSE. That doesn't seem to be solving the problem. But the the report after report after report also doesn't seem to be solving the problem. So there needs to be a different approach to it. Um, um I feel for for everybody involved in circumstances whether it's families and um, patients the people who are working in the sector um, who are, are, are obviously exhausted at are, are frustrated with the system in which they're operating within, and it's pouring out across the papers today. Um, and and as I say, I'm, I don't claim to be the expert in what it is that we do to get this rider right to fix the problem, but but what we're doing so far just doesn't seem to be doing it. And, and I I I have sympathy again for the for Bernard Gloucester and the HSE in terms of trying to to get this under control. I don't know how you do it, but um, but something needs to change.
1: Alice, you picked this as well, so. Uh, I mean, what you could say is that this is clearly they were overwhelmed in in Limerick Hospital that night and none of the things that should have happened happened. Uh, She was triaged, uh, Aoife was triaged and I think possible sepsis identified. She was made a category Mm -hmm. two um, patient, which meant she should have been seen in 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. apparently a sepsis bundle Mm-hmm. Uh, should have been administered within an hour, which is a, a bundle of treatments and tests and everything. Uh, none of this se- seems to have happened, and it took it, it took her parents. And other patients apparently kicking up eventually at four or five in the morning and 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 really causing trouble to eventually get. And it was too late then.
2: It, it was too late. And I, I think it, it, it is impossible to understand the pain of the families going through this. But I think the staff in overcrowded uh, situations, too, are, are in an impossible situation. And I suppose I have seen over the years millions being thrown at the health service. Nothing seems to improve. Uh, and I think Bernard Luster has an almost impossible task. And really, I just wonder if enough effort is being put in to getting the various disciplines to sit around the table for a start to all work together and see what can we do. and But sometimes they are probably so worn out from dealing with the day-to-day problems that that is impossible. But clearly something has to happen because there we have two very tragic cases today on, on, on our paper, The Independent. Uh, I'm glad they did publish it, even though it makes for harrowing reading, as you said yourself. But... Uh, somebody needs to take a grip of what's happening in the health service. There is something radically wrong. And uh, I think from the top down and from the bottom up, uh, But uh, patients are crying out on their families for understanding and for help.
1: Yeah. Mick, um, the the health minister is an interview in the (coughs) Sunday Independent and he does seem to be trying to get a grip in it with this. I suppose this is kind of the kind of thing that we maybe thought Stephen Donnelly might bring to, to government as a former, was he McKinsey or whatever, yeah. a health performance visualisation platform and looking at patient um, patient activity per healthcare professional, etc.
4: Yeah, kind of... and. An- I suppose, in one way, it's a sort of a name and shame in terms of which hospitals are performing vis-a-vis the extra resources that have been put in and which are not in terms of outcomes and that. And, you know, it, it, it's hard to disagree with it. I mean, to be fair to the service in general, there are parts of it that work very well. There are parts that once people get into the system, they're well treated and you continually hear those stories as well as the tragic, awful stories that we hear as well. For instance, I mean, the, the, the way that cancer care was addressed Uh, Going back to, when was that, 2008, 2009, that man was brought in from Canada... Oh, his name escapes me. Sorry, no, he's an Irish consultant and, and he, he oversaw the transformation to the centres of excellence for cancer care. You know, th- th- there are aspects with that are done well. But I also go back to, I, I recall, Brendan, I'd say it's at least 15 years ago, I was talking to a politician at one stage, he was an opposition politician, and he said um, if I did not have to get elected in the morning, re-elected in the morning, if my leader would leave me alone I could go in there and sort out the problem. Now, that's an exaggeration but it also emphasises the political aspect to the whole thing. In that which is what? Which is that you have so many different interests in there and keeping them balanced and ensuring that everybody stays on board it would strike me appears to be a very difficult job. We've seen it would appear that in terms of investment the money is being put in. There also have been highly competent people at various levels within the system but it does appear that there are so many disparate elements within there that in some areas of it, it's very difficult to address in, in terms of getting everybody on board. And I, I, I think that's a problem that has faced yeah. health ministers continually over the last 20 years. It, it's it's
1: almost like stating the obvious to say that it's so big and so complex, like we, we can't manage it. But the, but yet, people manage big complex things all over the world and in the private sector, huge corporations seem to
4: have a reason. They don't have to, to be popular in doing Indian. it. They don't have to run yeah. for re-election. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. Ben? I think the, th- the thing that struck me from both stories both Aoife's story and ah- Hannah's story in the in the Sunday independent was the fact that there was these were vulnerable people who had very little voice um their advocates were either kept out of the room because of covid or they there were language issues or there were communication problems and I think the problem is that so much of this falls precisely on the heads of those—the elderly and the young—who don't have voice. I mean, if I go into an A and can shout for myself, I can I can advocate for myself. But little kids and the elderly, you know, they're the ones who are left on the trolleys. And and, no, and in a pressurized it, environment, if I can it understand Johnson's why I think Johnson's parents listen. were
1: advocating from from the get-go mm-hmm. in there. But like, I mean, I think we we've probably all been in that situation where you're in there mm-hmm. and you're grabbing everyone you can see mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. saying to them, "Look, my case mm-hmm. is different. To everyone else, mm-hmm. this is special case. Can you but not do listen?" And they listen to you and I think they're all doing their best. Mm-hmm. They listen to you and they say, OK, I hear you. I'll be back to you. And, and three hours later, you you grab someone else and say, yeah. Um, OK, we'll uh, we'll move on from that as well. And on to uh, one of the big talking points of the week, uh, which is JP McManus and his very generous donation to uh, to the GA county boards all over the country. Ben, you picked... Um, they a piece from The Sunday Times, Michael Foley, McManus gifted GA as Game changer.
3: Yeah, I was fascinated by the fact that, it, you know, the gift is causing problems for, for a lot of county boards in terms of how the money is to be distributed. Because for some boards, it's, it's you know, it's very easy to divide it up amongst all of the clubs. For other boards, between the women's games and the men's games and the children's games, they're having a real problem and they're worried about how it's going to affect their, their fundraising. Um, I know in, in, in Family Place back in, in, in Mayo and Bunny Conlon, you know, if you divide the money, you know, it, as it should be by 50, there's 20,000. Pounds or 20,000 euro uh, going to the Bunny Conlon ch- Club, which would be a huge investment and, and h- make a huge change. Um, but it's just fascinating to me that the first item on the agenda is the problem of how to deal with the money. Yeah, Alice, you're a big GA woman, aren't you?
2: I am. What do and, you think it is? Uh, well, two things struck me. The first thing struck me was when we have successful businessmen and women in our country, we're a great nation of big I'm not uh, concerned about how... All I'm concerned about the tax issues is that, that I pay my tax and that's it. I'm not Concentrating on his tax issues, but I, I think uh, I, I was reading Shane McGrath's article and Joe Broly's, and I think so they, Shane McGrath's
1: is in the Mail on Sunday, mail on it, Sunday and
2: Joe Broly is in the Indo, and uh, they both give very balanced reports because on the one hand there are people who are saying uh, about his tax, but on the other hand this money is going to clubs, and I'm glad it's going to clubs, not to headquarters, because the the real life heartbeat heartbeat of the GAA is the clubs where you ha- where it teaches young people about the importance of winning the importance of uh, losing the importance of working together and meeting people from other communities and also meeting people who are coming from abroad now who are in the GA. so I think it is great for the clubs but on Do you the know GAA, what uh,
1: Well you talk there now I think should he not have given a set amount to every club maybe because some clubs are only going to get a couple of grand like and others will get 20, 30,000
2: well, yes, I su- but I suppose I haven't gone into the size of the clubs in great detail. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the one thing I hope is that we're not seeing Limerick win again for the next <laughs> 10 years and we'll never get to see Kip, Tip or Cork in a good Munster final again.
1: Yeah, we need a few so. more sugar daddies maybe around, <laughs> around the country. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, Mick, would you be as forgiving about the uh, Swiss Irish philanthropist?
4: Uh, I wouldn't really, to be honest with you, Brenda. I, I, I think, in fairness, Joe Bradley wouldn't necessarily agree with Joe that time, but I think he's an excellent piece today. Yes. And, um, you know, it points out that. You know, J.P. McManus, he's a tax exile in America. We call such pe- They call such people tax fugitives and yet he's, he's, um, he's not paying... No, his he's,
1: he would say his business
4: is in Switzerland and that's yeah. where he pays his yeah. taxes. Yeah, but most people who sort of have a business somewhere else, they tend to live there and they, 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 they're not an integral part of the life in the country. Perhaps they departed. Fair play to J.P. McManus. He soldiered with Limerick uh, GAA through the very bad times. 45 years they went without a title. It's not sports washing to that extent. He is a genuine... GA person, there's no question about it. However... If you have a scenario whereby somebody has, has departed in terms of obligations to pay taxes, and yes, there's very generous. Well, no, one. he has no obligation to pay taxes. No, no. If he, if he was in the country, he yeah, would. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. Well, what, he, what he's doing is perfectly legal. Yeah. But if somebody departs and, and that he doesn't have an obligation to pay taxes as a result of departing, then to pay a full role within the country and to be well, put he's up a been pay- be
1: here for is it 180 days over two yeah. years? Yeah. Which 180 is enough days
4: a year, I think. Yeah. I to thought pay. it was 180 between two years. We check that yeah, maybe, but yeah. yeah. But, but it's I enough time to I'm be an suggest- integral part of the community, s- isn't well, it? Well, ask him down in Limerick. You know, yeah. I mean, to be fair, in the Midwest. And he is very generous. And, and in all sorts of charities in the Midwest in particular, and in this and GN, as I say, I, I would totally accept the genuinity. However, you know, we'd all be a lot better off if billionaires like everybody else played their role in society and paid their taxes the way everybody else has. Or Just to give you another example, say for instance... He had don't donated mention that any money.
1: Billionaires, now First, well, well, when you on. say, To give you another example," say,
4: say, for instance, he had donated that money to show jumping or some what you might call exclusive sport, perhaps maybe even golf, something like that. Would there be the same reaction to his generosity? I don't believe so. So either the principle is there or it's not. Just to give you another example, well,
1: that he donated it to something that is viewed as the heartbeat of community in Ireland, mm-hmm. as, as Alice was saying, like it is. Yeah. It's it's a network that's all over the country on the on, at the grassroots
4: and all that. Absolutely, but he would if, if, he, was pay, if he was here as a, a tax resident, he'd be paying, we'd all like to donate, we'd all like to donate for example our tax money to something that we would enjoy or get a kick out of seeing benefit there. We can't do that. We have to donate it for the sewage system, for the turn the lights on, etc. All of that. And I would just think there is, and Joe Broly goes to the heart of that today, and I would think there is an issue there. And the fact that it is to a fantastic organisation like the GA, and I'm involved in it myself, it takes a sting out of it for a lot of people in that because it's something that will benefit a lot of people people say i ah, sure you're only being begrudging if you don't uh, accept that and I just the principle still applies Are you being begrudging about this Lorna?
0: <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree um, with Mick there I think you know we, if we could all choose where we donate our taxes um, to which causes we donate them to um, I think we would all be able to, to choose very worthwhile causes and I'm not saying that the GAA doesn't deserve um, or, or can't benefit from and doesn't do great work across communities Um, but there are lots of other groups that are also doing great work across communities but aside from that there's a lot of important things that are happening that aren't the flashy stuff as Mick said the water, the sewage, all of those pieces that our taxes go um, on benefiting the greater good that everybody has access to um, and and that are are services that we all require um, and by choosing to donate in the way in which um, this is, is taking place, Every, not everyone gets access to the, the high level of service that we require. So if all millionaires and billionaires um, pay their taxes in the same way as you or I or any of the rest of us here, um, I, I think our communities and society would be a, a better place. He's
1: regretting that act of generosity, I tell you. 183 days or more in a tax year, right? Yeah. Two hundred and eighty days or more in total, taking the current tax year plus the preceding tax year together. Okay, uh, you will not be resident there. And if you were here for thirty days or less in in a tax year, I'm not sure what. That and remember, remember, and means. Sorry, so going back a number get, years, there get, was an no outcry
4: no about the, the idea of tax exiles, and as a result, the government brought in a rule whereby those who were so called tax exile paid a nominal. It was a hundred thousand or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So a, yeah. A, a, a year. But even that. In terms, and I think there's dozens of people who qualify even that went way down in terms of people found a way to get around that so I mean you know it, it raises very legitimate questions I think and just soft quoting it is I don't think it works like but sure look there you are it's yeah. still very popular
1: Yeah exactly um on a text from Maria on hospitals, I'm nursing 44 years this year. I have five nursing qualifications and I worked abroad. The HSE is too heavy with management. Frontline staff are struggling on the ground. Managers who are inexperienced ticking boxes and running up the ladder because they have computer skills. I now work as a public health nurse. I love my job, but despair for the future and no one is listening. You know, Maria, that could have probably come from anyone in any industry, in any organisation. Mm-hmm. People love to give out about the type of people who are managers like this. the the kind of professional careerists and everything, and then the people who feel they're there doing the really hard work always feel uh, these other people are only spoofers kind of thing. Uh, When you have more managers, so this is a Kerry listener, same point. When you have more managers and frontline staff and paperwork more important than the patients, healthcare workers are overwhelmed. You've the wrong people at the wrong level. A fish rots from the head down, says that Kerry listener. Okay, we will... uh, take a break and uh, our panel staying with us Alice Leahy Ben Tonra, Mick Clifford and Lorna Fitzpatrick
0: Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio One.
1: 1 Welcome back our panel are still with us Alice Leahy Ben Tonra, Mick Clifford and Lorna Fitzpatrick uh, text there on JP McManus. Uh, at least his money doesn't always go to Dublin. I love the fact he supports Limerick. He knows where his money is going to, which is true. If only we could all <laughs> say the same about our taxes. Like they go into this black hole. Like you don't know where half it's going. JP McManus uh, text there. Happy Christmas to you all. Why can't we just say thank you very much to Mr. JP McManus. Simple as that. OK, uh, we, we move on. We're not getting back into that again. Um, uh, you you wouldn't think actually that uh, there is a much more important existential issue as well. COP ended and we are kind of moved on very quickly, but there is stuff uh, in the papers uh, today. Ben, you picked this interesting piece in
3: the in the Business Post, Lark and Allen, which probably tells us everything we need to know. Yeah. I mean, if you if you want to know whether COP was a success or a failure in terms of climate change, the fact that the global economic markets have bet on the oil companies, <laughs> not against the oil companies and their share prices have gone up three to five percent. Uh, I think Lorcan Allen's point is, is is very well made. My only reservation I think is the last line in the piece where he says markets very rarely get these things wrong. I think markets do get things wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. They yeah. don't price in everything they should be pricing in. They don't take account of all the realities. But I think it does tell you something about the result of COP that the, 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 oil, the, the, the oil share prices actually went up. The markets aren't running
1: scared. No. Okay. Um, Lorna, you picked. Uh, actually, before we get to that, Alice, you picked Gary Murphy in the Sunday Times. Uh, where well he's basically making the point. Does as, anyone?
2: Yeah, as, does as anyone uh, and Gary always writes a, a very good article, and he captured a lot of I think what, what a lot of people are thinking. Um, would anyone care about the elders if Mary Robinson were not the chairwoman? And I suppose we had all these wonderful reports from George Lee from R.T. during COP. But last Wednesday morning, when I went in to work, we work in a basement. And John is a man who is homeless, so comes to us every Wednesday morning. And he was leaning over the gate and... And I thought this was somebody having a heart attack. So I tapped him on the shoulder and he looked up and he said, oh Alice, is you. And I said, John, how are you? Are you OK? Oh, he said, no, leave it, Alice. I'm just listening to the report from COP. On Cop. And I thought to myself, he was paying more attention to it than I was. <laughs> and, I, and I think Gary Murphy is raising very important issues in all of this because we have Eamon Ryan, we have him jetting over and he was going to jet back and go back again. Yeah, no, he didn't, and in he, fairness. But he didn't. He, so Somebody must have said, no, Eamon, come on. Or he thought to himself, no, he wouldn't jet back. And he didn't uh, over and back. But there, And then would people listen or do people listen to what Mary Robinson is saying? I mean if she wasn't the head person of the Elders and, I know and but in fairness deep... it
1: did seem like people did seem to be saying that she had kind of uh, exposed Al Jabber with oh, that, she has. that, thing and that I think she's very leaked and that it, it changed the dynamic woman.
2: and I've met her several times and I think she is doing her level best but are we and she did challenge the the people in the Middle East and about the whole in, uh, oil industry but I wonder are we as a nation listening as clearly as we should to what she has to say? Yeah. Are we interested?
1: Yeah. Lorna. And um, that's the
2: point that Gary is making in his excellent article.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think depressingly you probably uh, have a point. Mick, is this back to what you were saying earlier about people needing to get re-elected as well, that like nobody's going, they're not going to change how we do everything yeah, that's, overnight,
4: which seems to be, if you listen to a lot of people, what needs to happen. Absolutely. And I mean, Gary's piece in, in that re- regard concentrates on the US and it's very valid in terms of the, the, there is no interest, basically. Uh, mm. it's, it's, it's a similar situation here. And there's a piece in the Business Post. And
1: the US is a bigger oil producer than, uh, than Saudi Arabia.
4: Yeah. yeah, but there's a piece of the business post, Eamon Ryan's impressive abroad but ignored at home, and, and to a large extent that sums the thing up. Well, Eamon Ryan is talking complete sense. Mm-hmm. He was involved in the negotiations, they're attempting to arrest climate change, but it is not hitting home. And one element to that I just wonder about all the power centres, all the, the electorate, even for instance, all of that, we're talking for, to the greatest extent of an older demographic, particularly a middle-aged and older demographic. If younger people, had that level of influence. I just wonder, would the same attitudes be there? Because it would strike me that the only people on in, in bulk who actually care about what's going on are very much the younger people who are going to have to face the worst ravages of it unless something drastic happens. And there is just that disconnect there between we, the science is there, we know what's happening, unless something amazing occurs, it's going to continue happening. Yet we are not, us in this country, in most countries, on mass, prepared to do what is required because it's going to discommode us so much and affect things like standard of living. There's no question about it. But th- that is the dilemma and it keeps happening over and over again. COP was just another example of that. Even the targets they have in COP one wonders whether they're realistic or there's any chance of achieving them. Yet, the science tells us they're necessary. Yeah. Ben? My colleague
3: Aidan Regan is, is writing the Sunday Business Post and he's touching on this point saying that there's this tension between the needs of climate change the aspiration for economic growth, and the realities of democratic politics. And those three things are not do not sit comfortably together, particularly the relationship between climate change and economic growth. And if we pursue economic growth and consumption at the rate we are, the planet simply cannot sustain us. Are but you, you can't it, it, ask people democratically to make that choice. I thought the green agenda was going to be the next driver of economic growth. That's, the, that's, that's supposed to fix that hinge. But the problem then is with the democratic consent part. Because you're asking people, as, as you're saying, Mick, people like me and most of the people around them, around this table who have a vested interest and a comfortable lifestyle to make real sacrifices, and democratically and politically, people are simply not willing to make those sacrifices. I think the younger generation is different. You know, they can't duck the realities of climate change. They know. They they have they have a sense of what what needs to be done, and a lot of them are protesting and and, 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 and animated about it. But you know, we're the ones who vote. We're the ones who have the vested interest and we, frankly, are the blockage.
0: I think it, there's an interesting oh, no. point here as well, though. Like I, I also pulled out Daniel Murray's piece in the Business Post there about Ryan's um, success abroad. But but yeah, uh, and
1: you you're a local area. I was just going to say, yeah, Party. I, <laughs> I, I
0: I have a, a, a seat in this in terms of uh, as a, a member of the, the Labour Party. But I do think Eamon Ryan is very skilled and very uh, he knows that he knows his brief inside and out, right? And so that can be seen when he's in his roles in COP and when he's in his role with the International Energy Agency. And, and so on, um, but when it comes to his conversations at home, he doesn't necessarily connect with people, and um, that's where the issue is. And part of that, I wonder, he, is he does though, does he? I don't think so. Not to the level. Like he has a very poor image, an awful lot that a lot of the time. So there's is the a kind of a
1: cartoonish stereotype yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, image.
0: Exactly. No deserved. Absolutely not. Um, but that image is there, and I think part of it is that when he tries to engage in these conversations, we have mo- a lot of research that shows we have a general understanding of the climate emergency and. And, and what we need to do generally in terms of recycling and, and so on. But we don't have the in-depth knowledge that it, that Eamon Ryan has in terms of this topic. And when he tries to communicate with people, he's at, in such um, a, a place with such detail and, and focus so much on, on intricacies that he loses the vast majority of us in terms of the conversation.
1: It's a scream. It says it's all about democracy. He knows too much about it. Like. <laughs> people won't listen to
0: but, but I think there is a piece here where young people are trying to come through and, and like we've seen it as has been referenced in terms of Fridays for Future and, and uh, in secondary schools and in, in colleges around the country. These are the people who will come out to vote and, and have, and I know there's a, 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 a well-used phrase in terms of young people not voting and, and so on, but we've seen a change in that in terms of uh, the the series of referendums that we've had recently in terms of social change in this country. And young people are engaged in, in voter registration, are engaged Greens in voting. still
1: languish at 4% in the poll. It, 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 it's, it's baffling, like, it, they, like they are on the existential issue of the literally like and that comes back will to the planet survive? Right?
0: communication piece and, and back to that intricacy. I think, and look again, I'm I, I have um a, a position on this in terms of a political representation, and I won't dwell on that at all. But I do think there's a way in which we need to communicate with people that the Green Party aren't getting right, um and and uh, on on a matter that is extremely important to the future of our our, our world, the future of our, our country, and and further afield, and our grandkids and my grandkids. And I'm 30 years of age, but it'll be my grandkids who are are, are still reaping um, the the, uh, consequences of decisions that are being made right now. It's
1: baffling that the Green Party never kind of fail, fail to launch, isn't it? I mean, they're in government and everybody would say they're managing to push through a lot of their agenda, but still on very low Absolutely. And w-
4: w- one of the big things there is there are the bearing of bad tidings and the bad tidings are the reality of what's happening <laughs> if people don't want to know. <laughs> right. yeah. and, and, and the other thing is in the age of social media and that and the age of polarisation, etc., somebody like Eamon Ryan becomes a lightning rod for disaffection. He has small mm-hmm. things like, for instance, he was caught at one stage closing his eyes inside the doll. Mm-hmm. So therefore, for you, this meme going around you The whole thing, Ryan Sleepy, blah, blah, blah. The guy has substance and he's telling us things we need to hear. And OK, he may not be Bill Clinton in terms of his communication, but he's not that bad either. But basically he's become that lightning rod for disaffection and uh, basically telling us what we don't want to know. OK, now uh, leading on
1: from that then uh, to actual uh, other party politics, the Mail on Sunday... Page six. John Drennan uh, is writing that coalition TDs are pleading for an early election to take out Shuk Sinn Féin, Mick.
4: Yeah, John Drennan's is writing this. He's suggesting because Sinn Féin, they they've they, they were constantly up in the polls over the last number of years and that's been arrested somewhat in the last few months. John is claiming that uh, there's a lot of... Fien- he's not claiming, sorry. He's spoken to a number of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs who are suggesting that a, a, a spring election would be a good thing. I, I personally had a few doubts about that. I think the issues that have beset Sinn Féin in recent weeks are not necessarily ones that will play true to an election. I think housing in particular is going to be... Well, come the, back sharply Yeah, the main event. Whether, the other thing then is is um, two elements to it. Would Leo Varadkar be seen as being overly st- strategic if he were to go for that early in election and how would the electorate respond to that? And the other element is, the man obviously enjoys being shook. He might try to try to ring another six months out of it anyway and wait till the autumn. I would still suggest that after the budget in round October, possibly November, is when, when you'd be talking about an election. One other quick thing. Fine Gael have a very bad record in wrongly calling when in government for a general election. I think a lot of people suggest it happened in 2020 that they should have gone earlier because they'd been riding high over Brexit and all that. Previously, I think around 97 they called it wrong then. So I think they're going to think long and hard before they actually come down and decide what exactly to do.
1: Lorna, what's your uh, what's your instinct from the Labour Party on when there be an election?
0: God, I I wouldn't claim to speak for the Labour Party on this one now. But um, what are you
1: hearing in circles, like what preparations wise and everything? When when have people got in mind?
0: Oh well, look, I think the the focus for me and for Labour and and so on is very much in terms of the the local elections right now. Um, but I, I presume and I would imagine um, every party is is preparing for a general, which we know is going to be coming in sometime in, in over the. the the next uh, 18 months or so um, in terms of preparing manifestos and all of those kind of things, I would imagine all of that is happening. Um, but I, I do think I'd agree with Mick um, in that I would imagine after a budget next year is probably um, um, one of the more likely... it
1: seems to be the standard thinking at the moment anyway. OK, I'm going to rock on because there's, there is a lot going on actually. Um, ben, can you kind of uh, give me an overview of where things are at in terms of the Middle East. Obviously, we've a lot has happened in the last twenty four hours. The shooting of the of the three seemingly escaped hostages, by, by their own uh, side, if you will, by their own team, as Biden put it put it recently. Um, has that changed the dynamic? Uh, in Israel, for example, and has has it maybe been some
3: kind of an inflection point here? Uh, th- that's exactly the word I was about to use. You took it right, <laughs> took it right out of the mouth. Um, I think what's what's striking is both that domestically, in terms of Israel and Netanyahu's position, but also externally, the UK and the US are ramping up pressure on Israel to call a halt, to have a ceasefire, not a pause, but an actual ceasefire. Um, we see a report in the Sunday Independent Today from one of the, the, the wire services saying that the head of Mossad was meeting with the foreign minister of Qatar to talk about the terms of what a substantial ceasefire might look like. Um, I mean, let's be frank, the, the Israelis still say that their, their, their objective is to root out Hamas from, from all of the tunnels and all of the, and all the places within within Gaza. They can't do that without killing you know, another 18,500 Palestinians. So there has to be a call uh, halt called at some point. The failure of diplomacy thus far has been egregious. The failure of the UN Security Council, the failure of, of UN agencies to be able to protect not only their own staff, but Palestinians on the ground. The failure of the European Union to get its act together in terms of what it wants. I mean, there's been a lot of failure to spread around. But I do think we're at a moment that potentially holds a cease for at least a substantial ceasefire.
1: It's interesting that uh, David Cameron and the German foreign minister have now called for a ceasefire. That's they're saying they're saying, a, a, they're talking about what a ceasefire. Is. Most people are regarding a ceasefire as Israel needs to stop blowing the bejesus out of Gaza. And Hamas Gaza. needs to stop
0: launching but rockets the, yes, and the whole bit. Like,
1: yeah. like like Cameron is saying very specifically, this needs to be a real ceasefire where Hamas lays
3: down its arms as well. Is there any chance of that happening? I mean look we we know what terrorist organizations are like you know they're they're not well centrally controlled they're not authoritative they're not responsible so you know to say that hamas would do anything you just don't know because there's so many individuals on the ground making individual decisions but i think what you do need desperately on both sides is simply a halt to the violence you can't have the negotiations you can't get anywhere without people start stopping shooting at one another. Um, whether that can be obtained from Hamas, I mean, that really is a job for the Qataris to see what they can manage, what, they can, what kind of agreement they can secure. We also understand and hear that you know, the local Palestinian population, you know, they're tired of this. They want, they want this to stop. There's pressure on Hamas as well in terms of Hamas's initiation of this on October, this, this phase on October the 7th. So but, again, but,
1: but huge support we saw in polling again, but like big support among Palestinians
3: for Hamas. And, and, for, and for even
1: for the October seventh, including attacks. the
3: diaspora, because they're under attack and and they they see their people being killed by their hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands. So if, of course, you're the the one people who are standing up, as you see, standing up for you, you're going to support. But there's still a lot of opposition. Hamas hasn't subjected themselves to a democratic election in Gaza in in over a decade. So, as I say, long long answer to a short question. I think we're at a moment where there's a diplomatic resolution in the short term. But the bigger question of how to resolve that crisis in the long term is still up in the air. And we saw the Israeli ambassador in London only two days ago saying that Israel doesn't support a two-state solution. I mean, where in God's name do you go from that kind of a position? But she's reflecting the position of the, of the current Israeli government. So getting Netanyahu out, I think, is part of a peace okay. process as well. Okay.
1: Uh, can I ask you one more question from the American standpoint? I- like, we were always led to believe that Biden quietly had a certain amount of leverage here, right? I remember, was it in 2021 when he f- famously went to Netanyahu after, was it about 12 days of, of, of bombing and said, BB, I've run out of road here, you need to stop. And he stopped. Have they lost control this time? Have they lost their leverage? Or they're not being listened to, are they? are uh, not being listened to. I mean, this thing to. of like, we're looking for more um, more uh, precision bombing. That's been going on. They've been talking about that for practically a month at this stage now,
3: haven't they? And nothing's happened. Nothing. And and I think the the problem, I mean, both Netanyahu has very little domestic credibility, Joe Biden's under pressure electorally. His coalition is fragmenting before our very eyes. Um, he doesn't have the political clout and wherewithal to go head to toe with with Netanyahu and and demand anything, I think a lot of happenings behind, a lot of things are happening behind the scenes. I think Anthony Blinken has has played a blinder in terms of a, a Secretary of State, but the tough message that he brings to Tel Aviv is not being listened to. Um, and again, a lot of that comes down to Netanyahu, his political position, his determination to defend himself politically, uh, and the way he sees to be doing that is is to attack Palestinians because it's it's part of his domestic political agenda. Yeah, and, it's, and as soon as the war stops, his leadership comes if into His
1: political survival, okay. it's most important to Anyone him. Anyone else want to come in on that?
4: Yeah, I mean, the other thing about it is, is on an emotional level after October 7th, and in terms of the backing of the Israeli people, you can understand why they began what they began. But they've played straight into Hamas's hands the whole time. Their apparent and so-called strategic aim to eliminate Hamas, that's not going to happen. You know, that, that, that simply isn't going to happen. So what do they do? They, they, they're, they're continuing to kill hundreds and thousands of innocent people for a strategic aim that simply won't well, happen thousands and of has innocent so people, yeah. far played directly into the hands of Hamas
0: just lacks humanity like again um, you know you, you look at social media and I, I've seen um, stories happening recently on, on different social media channels where people are being uh, where influencers or, or whatever who would have a, a following on social media are being uh, are being, um, challenged by some of their followers as to why they're not talking about this and why they're not um, posting about the, the issues that are happening um, and the people who are being murdered and, and, and killed so horribly um, and, and and They're saying, "I don't know what to say. I, I don't know how to have this conversation." And I think there's a lot of us who are in that position where, we, from a human perspective, we're going, "This is not okay, and we need to stop." But but how do we stop? And how do we have the conversation where uh, Netanyahu is emboldened by by um, by, by the, the people around him, um, and and uh, Palestinians are crying out for help, um, and and I just don't see. What like the EU is failing to to as as has been said that there's failures all round, and so what do we do? How do, how do we use our voice? How do we have this conversation? What do we do to try and resolve this issue, and and to stop this uh, to, to stop the, the the killing on on both sides? Um, because like there needs to be a conversation. We need to be able to to have diplomacy work.
1: So so on well, that then then the institutions, uh, the EU and the UN Whither all of that like
3: i think that the real problem that we have with the institutions is that you know the, the multilateral system that we thought we were going to have at the end of the after the end of the cold war hasn't hasn't materialized um, we 've seen the rise of authoritarian powers outside that system. We see within the European Union, within the United States, within these institutions authoritarian parties, authoritarian leaders it 's a real crisis of of liberal democracy at play which is being reflected in the, into the international community um, and that 's why the international system is fragmenting and, and, and failing to failing to deliver the goods i've written elsewhere um, talking about uh, the ghosts of the League of Nations. Walking the corridors in New York, uh, you know the League of Nations collapsed because it lost credibility and it couldn't it couldn't do the job it was given the un is in danger of much the same in trouble is it it's very much seriously in trouble and and diplomats have that job to try and defend it and i, I was speaking to irish diplomats after the after the recent uh, stint on the un security council you know they said a large part of their job was just defending the status quo they couldn't advance portfolios they couldn't they couldn't make progress anything they spent all their time just trying to defend More what right had together. already been achieved because they're under so much pressure from outside the organization and from within the organization
1: okay we'll take a break Alice Leahy, Ben Tonra, Mick Clifford and Lorna Fitzpatrick staying with us.
0: Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1.
1: Welcome back, Alice Leahy, Ben Tonra, Mick Clifford and Lorna Fitzpatrick are still with us. Alice Leahy, uh, you are concerned about uh, public toilets and not for the first time. So um, (laughs) there's a piece in the Sunday Independent, Maya Dunphy is writing about it.
2: And Maya has, uh, would you believe it, it was, uh, I'm trying to look up here when I, um, Seventeen years ago, we started a campaign for public toilets and public showers in the city. Yeah, And seven years later, when there were the next uh, local government elections, well, it was seven years or four years, which is it? four years, uh, we made the same submission and surprise, surprise, nothing happens. I wish some millionaire. I would be quite willing to sit down with a the millionaire there we tomorrow. Go. And you might. <laughs> We'd probably take a billionaire. we probably take a billionaire. A female millionaire, but I don't know where they are we would sit down and say why hasn't this city got public showers and public loos? They're all over Europe and we're a capital city. Now I would disagree with Maya on, I would agree with everything she wrote but I would disagree with one thing. She said the public showers at the top of Grafton Street, they were grand. Well they're not grand. Are You'll they have. public sh- toilets? There, are the, are what, there showers there all, as well? No, there aren't showers. It's kind of a
1: Nordic looking kind of building. Is. Is it there and there were the a few Stephen things Queen like Center.
2: flowers that were meant to be growing outside it. But directly across the road, in the cor- a corner of Stephen's Green, there were perfectly built public toilets, but I think that's owned by Lewis. Now, Now the last time I was in there, Brendan, just it's cheerful before Christmas, I was walking along there looking for a, a cork man who was homeless on the streets of Dublin. The poor man died since. And I knew he was missing from the place where he was being cared for. And I knew I would find him in the public toilet. But how do you go into the men's section of the public toilet? So I grabbed a man by and <laughs> By the arm, and said, Look, will you come with me? Now, I'm sure he thought I had other ideas. But there we went in and we found the man. We looked under the door and we were able to shout. He was sitting on the seat and we were able to call him. And we were able to get him successfully back into the care home where he was. And so, those pub, there were lots of buildings. There was one in Rap Mines, there was one in O'Connell Street. Why have we got rid of everything that was stable and is required? And I, I feel for the staff outside that building in Stephen's Grid. They're standing there in all weathers, um, cleaning up after people and helping people. But the rest of us sitting around the table here, if we want to go into a toilet in town, we can hop into any pub or we can hop into BT's or any place. But a lot of people wouldn't have that confidence. So I think it is shocking. While we're talking about, you know, ambassadors, residence, and we're talking about seats, did you read about the seats in the library in the doll, Michael McDowell uh, was questioning the... Yes. Uh, how, how much so is it for four we're seats? We're 15? talking about 15, all of that, and now I have a here yeah. because it grabbed my imagination. Fifteen. Um, Fifteen
1: grand for four what, seats, I the, think.
2: Yeah. Uh, John Drennan, of course. Uh, Fifteen uh, grand for seats. Now, what kind yeah. of? What kind of bottoms have they to sit on? How many seats?
1: thrones uh, w- with, with cisterns would you get for that? You would thrones, get a yeah. lot and a lot yeah. of
2: toilet paper as well. But it shows in a way how. And I think it's important that we look at that because the new chairs at a cost of 15,000. I mean, what world are we, li- what planet are we living on? And meanwhile, you have no public loos or no public showers.
0: Lorna. Of which accessibility is a massive issue that features as well and as has been said there you know we might be able to pop into a, 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 a pub or a shop or whatever it is to, to use the loo. Um, I remember when I was working with the National Council for the Blind it's now Vision Ireland um, and, and there was issues that used to come forward all the time around people having accessibility challenges being able to get into businesses but to yes, use facilities. They're not, there. they're not there even to have access. To exactly but but that's what I mean in terms of mm-hmm. businesses mm-hmm. And, and them not being available mm-hmm. or accessible whereas mm-hmm. any Public infrastructure that mm. we should build, and and mm. I agree with you, we should have those public loo's available, and they should be accessible to everybody to and if, use. If
1: anything, we're making it more difficult for uh, visually impaired people to get around too by this slow creep
3: of,
0: yeah. of businesses street onto onto the street and street furniture and all of that. Kind of that. Of thing. It's a, a massive ben, you issue.
1: wanted to come in on the toilet yeah, issue.
3: It's it's not just a passive thing of access. You know, there's an active science in in architecture, in public architecture. To, to prevent people sitting down, to prevent people having access to infrastructure, to Absolutely. to avoid undesirable yeah. social situations. So they deliberately cut back on public toilets, public facilities, public seating, public spaces, or design the public spaces specifically in such a way as to make them uncomfortable for people not to stay, which is a bizarre Absolutely. way to treat a public yeah. space to try and keep the public out.
4: And, 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 and particularly people in public, particularly people who are vulnerable, people whom Alice advocates for and, and, and meets on a daily basis... They're no longer treated, to my mind, as human beings, but more as statistics and whether yeah. or not, because they're, they're given access to various elements of public infrastructure, does that mean ultimately is there fear that there's going to be vandalism or whatever? Mm-hmm. That kind of thinking goes on rather than realising. And let's face it, you're dealing with an increasing level of an underclass, always to look at during the week there, are 3,000 people queuing up for food in, in, um, in the Capuchin Centre there's an increasing number yeah, of people. Yeah, we won't call them an underclass, like. So, well, no, yeah. sorry, I, I don't mean that, but I mean, yeah. There, yeah, there's I an increasing number of people it. that are vulnerable yeah. in, in, in terms of the way the economy is going and that sort of thing.
1: And Alice, then, will you tell me so a bit about um, clients of yours and their Christmas
2: well, uh, for a start, we, we never call people clients. Okay, you know, and I don't mind you saying that, but generally, we get people ringing us up to say "your clients." We say the people who use our service. Okay. Now, I was looking back at last year, Brendan, and the same week, this uh, the, the week before Christmas, we had exactly the same number of people coming in as we had. Uh, This week, some of those have died, some have moved on to better things, some have gone home, but all the people we work with are real loners who sleep out on their own in parks all over the city and the county and they come from all over the place. And, we would and would booked. they
1: be resistant, Alice, to going into a, an institution or a group setting that? They would. That, and I right? must
2: say, and I must give credit uh, to Mary Hayes in the Dublin region, at home, ex, homeless executive. We don't get money from the state. but uh, And can I have, take this opportunity to thank our supporters who are listening into this programme, because you have a great listenership, Brendan. Uh, but anyway... Um, Mary Hayes has been very helpful if we meet people who we're concerned about who are homeless long term. She uses every possible way of trying to get them into accommodation. There's a person who's homeless not far from where we work and um, got accommodation, has been offered accommodation again and is out on the streets and will be out on the streets over Christmas. But most of the people we work with are real loaners. Now, one man who comes in to us, his request for us last Christmas, would we get him a copy of the Ireland's Own? And so we get him a copy of the Ireland's Own, that's very little. But you see, he's connecting with his rural roots. Yeah. And he'd, if you came in now, he probably, w- he wouldn't speak to anyone around the table. He's very much on his own. But he has improved over time because we're able to give people more time now. So I said to him the other day, I, I said to my colleagues, our great colleagues, I said, um, well, some of you ask him, what is he doing for Christmas? And they said, no, Alice, you better deal with them. So anyway, I said to him, what are you doing for Christmas? Or what do you think of it? And I was amazed by it. Now, we don't discuss religion or anything. We always keep a candle lighting. And those battery ones are great now for safety reasons. And he said, you know, hasn't it changed, Alice? He said, the churches are closed. And he said, there used to always be a month before Christmas when you could talk about Christmas. Now, I couldn't believe mm. what he said. I was quite amazed And then we had another man who was standing outside our door the other morning when we opened up. He had come out of hospital. The hospital had arranged accommodation for him and they're very good in the hospital, not too far away from us, to deal with the problems. And they're not easy ones to deal with because sometimes you have people who are drinking very heavily, who won't take their medication, who won't keep appointments and it's everybody's fault if things go wrong. But he was outside the gate in flip-flops And um, a dressing gown and clothes over it. He'd spent six weeks in hospital. He'd been given accommodation in a housing body, we often hear on the radio complaining about things. And he'd come down to us um, for a shower and a change of clothes. Now, it took Mark, one of my colleagues, an hour to help to get that man to, to find out what was really going on in his life. Was he really homeless? Had he been discharged inappropriately? All of that. And eventually after an hour and he had his instant porridge and he had a cup of coffee, complete change of clothes. If you met him, he was better dressed than any of us around the table here. So he will go off and he was going to a friend for Christmas and his friend said he said his friend was studying sociology in one of our big universities so I said there you are now that's a good case study to get on with so and then there was a man who who um, came from rural Ireland very independent doesn't mix doesn't speak to anyone and I was chatting with a businessman who was very good to us on our steps and this man came up just wiping tears away he had looked at the candle and he had heard and we always have lyric on in the morning because Marty keeps us going with the Carols this time of the year. Yeah. And we all listen to we we love his and he's a bit of humour in between and mm. makes it nice. So um it's a sad time for people, it's a lonely time for people. But then we see wonderful things. People are so marvellous to us over the years. Our work wouldn't be possible without the generosity of all kinds of people, rich, poor, business people, all kinds of people. And I suppose, isn't that what Christmas is about? And even that I have the opportunity this morning to be here with you, speaking to the nation. Little did I think when I was growing up, I'd be speaking to the nation about Christmas time? So I think we all have our experiences of Christmas, but I think the people we work with, and then some of them will come in to us. One man came in last year, and I'm sure the same will happen this year, with a white feather he had picked up, a beautiful white feather, he had picked up where he was staying out in the park. Now, if that's not what the Greens would believe in, and Eamon Ryan would be very pleased to see, we could have a conversation about the environment.
1: Yeah, OK, sorry to the rest of the panellists, but I think it was Sorry for going on for so long. One you. thing that struck me about that, so that man who came out of the hospital and probably so many of your people, and it's maybe something we should all think about, patients... And to slow down a bit and be with these people a little bit—is it like—and and—and just take the time.
2: Sometimes? We had a man who used to come into us, and he died some time ago. He wasn't homeless, but he would have been homeless if the local community. Did. He had three dogs. Poor Eddie. He was just lovely, and he'd come in and he'd say to me, "Alice, Alice, will you just slow down? Will you all take time? You're racing around too much."
1: Slow down, <laughs> okay. Thank you very much to our panel today. Alice Leahy, Director of Services at the Alice Leahy Trust. Ben Tonner, Professor of International Relations at UCD. Mick Clifford, Special Correspondent at the Irish Examiner. And Lorna Fitzpatrick, Account Manager at Instinctive Partners. Thank you very much, guys.